I'm Kay Firth Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello, Kay. Great to see you. Great to see you too. How have you been? It's been going well in D.C. We have a bit of sunshine today, which is welcome. We had a wonderful event, as you know, yesterday for our Equal AI badge holders, where we had our first reconvening. We got to introduce our alum with our current participants, and we got to hear from Victoria Espinel, CEO and president of the Business Software Alliance, who is just a tremendous resource of knowledge as a lawyer, as uh, somebody who leads in software and tech, and someone who was in the White House in a pivotal role as the IP enforcement coordinator. So introducing her to our participants, hearing their very thoughtful questions, and then their ability to talk amongst each other with the challenges they're seeing was really gratifying, helpful, interesting, um, and, and sparked many more conversations that we'll look forward to following up on. Um, and I think it's been so much fun. I don't know if you've been able to tune into the NIST workshop. They've had two days on the AI risk framework with really thoughtful conversations with participants from across the world, across industry. I thought it's been really well done once again because they have consistently been above and beyond. And tomorrow I look forward to the conversation I'll be having on their biased in AI document uh, in a conversation with Anish Chopra, uh, and and some others, so that will be 11 a.m. tomorrow. Really looking forward to that. But that's enough out of me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I was in Europe last week uh, for various meetings, and so I think that you certainly have been up to many more things than I have. But, you know, just one of the things about the meeting yesterday is the joy that people have of learning from one another and being able to network. And, you know, that's something that the badge program really gives them. Yeah, it's really it's really special because we have a community that wants to do well. They want to make sure they're not discriminating. They want to get ahead of litigation uh, and can do that together. And so speaking of litigation, I'm really excited for our guest today, Commissioner Keith Sonderling, who I'm sure will tell us about some of the risks and hazards that we'll all wanna be thinking through to avoid mishaps, including litigation and prosecutions. Absolutely, and I'm very excited as well because you know, Keith's been saying so much about this very thorny area of um, how you use AI in human resources. And we know that the, the, the EU is, um, has also taken this up as a course. So it'll be really nice to know how America is thinking about it as well as Europe. Absolutely. So let's dive in. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Keith Sonderling, Commissioner of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, also known as EEOC, where he has served since September of 2020. Previously, Keith served as the Commission's Vice Chair, and prior to his confirmation, Commissioner Sonderling served as the Acting and Deputy Administrator of the Wage and Hour Division at the U.S. Department of Labor, which administers and enforces federal labor laws. Before joining the Department of Labor, Keith worked as an employment lawyer in West Palm Beach. So, 
Keith, thank you very much for joining us today. And to start with, we wondered if you could share for our listeners something more about your important role, telling us about the work of the EEOC, what is the agency's mission, and what is the focus of your particular efforts? Well, thank you, and I'm delighted to be on the podcast today. You know, the EEOC, when there, there's so many federal agencies, especially in employment law, when you're dealing with Department of Labor, with OSHA, but the EEOC is unique. Um, it, we were born out of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, and our mission is to prevent and remedy unlawful employment discrimination and advance equal opportunity for all in the workplace. So we are the federal agency responsible for enforcing federal laws, essentially that make it illegal to discriminate in the workplace. And I like to say we are the premier civil rights agency in the world. We administer and enforce Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, the Equal Pay Act, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Genetic Information and Non-Discrimination Act. So what does that word salad uh, actually mean? So the laws we administer and enforce not only protect an employee, but they protect a job applicant from discrimination based upon their race, color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, pregnancy, national origin, age, disability, or genetic information. And generally they apply to Everything you think about at work, so hiring, firing, promotions, training, uh, wages, benefits, harassment, and retaliation. So uh, we're based in Washington, D.C., but we have offices around the country that uh, administer and enforce uh, these laws. And Keith, it has been so exciting to watch you delve into the world of AI while you've been working at the EEOC. It's, it's been exciting to see uh, you guys really understand in depth uh, how the two are so interconnected. How did you personally become so interested in responsible AI? Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and what are you hoping to achieve through this work? Well, thank you so much for, for those compliments. But since I joined the EEOC, I've really made it my priority to address the use of artificial intelligence in the workplace. And I've been making a lot of noise about it uh, for, for good reason. Essentially, as we'll discuss, this technology is out there. It's being used. And right now, employees who are being subjected to this technology, employers who are buying, developing, and using this technology, and vendors who are creating this technology really don't have any guidance. They have no best practices or potential awareness of the significant legal ramifications I know we'll discuss. And, you know, as you'll hear from me, I'm a very, very big proponent of AI because I believe that if it is carefully designed and properly used, that it really has the potential to transform the workplace, especially when so much of the conversation is around removing bias from employment decision-making. We have a, a tool that may be able to do it. So my raising awareness about this is because I want it to flourish. And I want real guidelines that actually help develop it, not what we've seen in the past when the government has gotten involved through significant federal enforcement or litigations. We, we have a unique opportunity now, all of us in the AI world, to, to work, and especially those in government, whether it's here or in the EU or anywhere in the world, we're at a crucial point now where we can still work with the regulated community, whether it's the developers, vendors, employee advocate groups, employers, to get this right. And that is so unique. And we, we, we have not had an opportunity like that in the government to work with a new technology and get it right on the outset. So that's really um, why 
I wanted to dive into it. I think we can all make a very significant impact. And as you all know, and your listeners know, AI is the future. But but how do we do that in accordance with the longstanding, most fundamental civil rights, especially those in the workplace? Absolutely. And it's great to hear your passion about how we can use AI beneficially um, and how you're really sort of espousing the idea of bringing AI to um, the employment space. But as we talk about the use of AI in the employment space, what are the laws that these AI tools fall under? Are there any at the moment? Um, And why should employers be careful when hiring, when employing AI in hiring? So uh, as you heard, our laws are from the 1960s. They may be old, but they're not outdated. They apply equally to all decisions made by a computer now in 2024 and 2040 or in the future as they did to employment decisions that were made um, by human resources professionals since the 1960s. So a lot of it in every one of those laws that I mentioned earlier, every one of those employment decisions, hiring, firing, benefits, wages, promotions, all of that now employers are using AI to do. And, you know, this really didn't happen overnight. And whether you're worried of it or not, it's really infiltrated HR. And, and, you know, that could be a really good thing because a lot of the reason the EEOC exists is because of the potential bias that humans have in making employment decisions. But, you know, AI now is being used from everything in the workplace, from writing job descriptions, to screening resumes, to chatting with applicants, conducting job interviews. It identifies employees' current skills and potential skills, tracks productivity, it assesses workers, and picks who gets those valuable and career-changing learning opportunities. So, and in some cases, it's even terminating people. So why it is so critical for me in my position here to make sure that everyone is very well aware that our laws, whether they're from the 1960s, 1970s, 1990s, or the 2000s, they apply equally to those decisions that HR departments are now using computers to make. So many important points you just made there that I look forward to us unpacking. Uh, You can look at the laws as being uh, out of date, but they are our laws and do apply. And it's up to us to make sure that, uh, or you (laughs) more specifically, to make sure that it is translated and people understand. Uh, As you say, people may not be realizing all the ways that AI is being used by them, for them, against them. um, and, And these laws are there to protect them. So thank goodness you are on guard and aware of this. But before we get further into some of the harms, it's clear from your opening remarks that this is a technology, artificial intelligence is something that you are overall excited about. Uh, You mentioned very helpfully many of the specific ways AI is being used in the employment context. Which of those ways or others uh, are you excited about? What do you think some of the benefits will be realizing and currently are realizing from artificial intelligence? Well, Whenever I talk about the benefits, uh, because I still am not only a lawyer, but in the government, there's still an asterisk. And that asterisk is if properly used and and properly designed, right? So it has to be both used correctly and implemented correctly. Because when you think about it, compared to a human, which we all are, AI only has algorithms that enable it to correlate data and make predictions. So according to industry experts, 
This is what makes AI so attractive to employers right now. AI's reliance on hard data creates the potential to eliminate discrimination by, I said earlier, moving that human from the decision-making process. And when it is designed in a clear and explainable way, which I know the AI community is really trying to push for, it eliminates one of the biggest challenges to effective human resource management. And that's the capriciousness of human tastes. So um, from, from my perspective, from all the studies, the reason the EEOC exists, right? We all know that the, the studies out there that's showing hiring managers are more likely to favor resumes of male names over female names even though the resumes are otherwise identical. Similarly, candidates, African-American and Asian-American candidates, there was a study when they whiten their resumes, and what do I mean by that? When they delete references to their race, they receive more callbacks than identical applications that included racial references. So this has been around for a very long time and what my uh, agency's purpose is, but here's an example of how AI can eliminate bias from the earliest stages of the hiring process. And one of my favorite examples to use is about resume screening programs that can be dis taught to disregard variables that have no bearing on job performance. So I think the most prime example of that is an applicant's name. What does an applicant's name tell you about their ability to do the job? I would argue absolutely nothing. It can signal correctly or incorrectly variables that have nothing to do with the, their actual ability to do the job, but protected characteristics such as their sex, national origin, religion, or race. So, you know, just removing that from the equation can get rid of discrimination at the earliest stages. And likewise, you know, moving on to some of these screening programs that, you know, we'll talk about the technology, you could have them completely disregard any factors that might suggest that they're in a protected class, such as foreign regional accents or speech impairments. And, you know, that could really get rid of intentional discrimination at the earliest stages. And you can go on the EEOC's websites and look at all of our press releases of the discriminations still occurring today. But, you know, think about during an interview process. Right away, the interviewer sees that person, right? And they're seeing a lot of information that has nothing to do with the job, you know, since the race, national origin, gender. Or they could see that they, to succeed in the workplace, they may need an accommodation. Maybe they're disabled. Maybe they're pregnant. Or maybe they're religiously observant. And you know, you can't get that out of your head, no matter what, when you're making an employment decision, you know, if you illegally say, well, I'm not going to go with this person because they're going to cost me more in healthcare. They're going to need certain accommodations. This is just going to cost me. Although that's illegal, you, you don't know how that decision is being made in somebody's mind. But with AI, when it's on clear and explainable metrics and, and, and proper data set, it eliminates some of the oldest discrimination that barriers that have prevented especially women and minorities, from getting in these positions. Keith, it's just wonderful to hear you talk about how exciting the opportunities are for using responsible AI in employment and curing, as you say, some age-old problems that we've got. But um, there are, as we know, negativities. And so um, based on your experience at EEOC, I wondered what are the greatest risks posed by artificial intelligence in the employment space? And obviously you talked a little bit about bad design of the actual algorithms. Um, also, which laws are employers most likely to violate? And what challenges do you actually have in enforcing the laws? Well, those are great questions and, and I'll take uh, I'll take them each separately. So, 
you know, we just talked about AI being used to help eliminate bias. But if it is poorly designed and carelessly implemented, so we're flipping the good now to say it's either designed bad or implemented bad, or somebody's using it for the wrong reasons, guess what? AI now can discriminate on a scale and magnitude far greater than any one individual professional before. Because there's only so much discrimination one individual can do. But if you have a code that scales discrimination to 50,000 applicants, suddenly we're seeing some of the most significant discrimination cases we've ever seen before. And you know, because why? AI makes predictions based upon the training data on which it's, it relies. So when thinking about this and, and trying to stay in my lane here as a labor and employment lawyer, or else I know this is, in, in this podcast, you talk about everything related to AI, but there are a lot of similarities, obviously. The AI is only as sound as the training data on which it relies. So an algorithm, in my context, that relies solely on the characteristics of a company's current workforce to model the attributes of the ideal job applicant will just unintentionally replicate the status quo. So if the current workforce is made up primarily of employees of one race, one gender, or one age group, guess what the algorithm is going to do? It's going to automatically screen out applicants who do not share those same characteristics. And you know, I, I use this example because it's shocking to most people, but the most infamous example of this, and it's just this story has legendary status at this point, is one company went to one of these resume screening companies and they said, okay, here are my best employees. Go find me, use AI to find the best ones. So through machine learning, it looked at the current employers, uh, employees and the best employees. And the AI said that the most likely predictors of success at that firm were being named Jared and having played high school lacrosse. So that is a, certainly an example, especially when these programs are being designed to help diversity and inclusion, um, that it really doesn't get you there. Uh, it's going to replicate the status quo there. And again, it's not because of the AI has a, a misogynistic intent to exclude women or is racist against one religion or color or race. It, it's solely upon the data set of which it's being fed. But here, unlike other contexts um, that you discuss in AI, the decisions AI being used in the HR space affects people's livelihoods, their well-being, and their well-being of their loved ones. It's, it's literally their ability to make a living and being having that opportunity taken away by an algorithm that can be catastrophic um, for them entering and maintaining in the workplace, especially as a lot of employers are, are designing or buying new systems to help them make decisions efficiently, economically, and effectively. And we talked, to, and when there's such a push now in my space for diversity, equity, inclusion in, in the workplace, and I know there's been a lot written about how, you know, the HR issues now are, are corporate board issues and are getting into ESG movements. And, you know, in, in a way, that's a very good thing. But at the same time, when you're trying to implement these programs, um, there's still very significant civil rights laws um, that apply and that can be essentially violated if you just allow the algorithm to do its own thing without some sort of check, number one, on the data set, and number two, on the algorithm itself. Is it an algorithm that somebody can use and go in there and be used to discriminate? So, um, you know, that's generally significantly some of the, the legal concerns about that, but you can go 
specifically into different technologies. So I said earlier that there's a lot of benefits, but at the same time, there could be potential harm. So the example I gave you before, so say you're using natural language processing to do a job interview. So you can't see the person, so you don't see that they're pregnant, you don't see that they're disabled, um, but because you're just using a transcript of the audio of the questions, which is a good thing, right? You wanna see if they can actually answer the questions and you can use AI to determine how the answers stack up against other people and, and based on preset metrics without any need to see them or having discrimination just by how they look. But, or even sound too, but, but if the computer can't determine somebody with a foreign accent and can't transcribe it perfectly, or if somebody is disabled and has a speech impediment, and they may have said answers 100 times better than somebody who speaks fluent English, but because the algorithm wasn't trained to have different accents or account for disabilities, it can automatically discriminate against those people, even though they were the best candidates for the job. And same, and I know there's been a lot written, we could spend the rest of the podcast on uh, video interviewing. It's the same thing there. Um, with facial recognition software, and, you know, I won't go into any of the science behind it, for, but for employers who are going to rely on that, you know, the MIT Gender Shades Project, which I, I know you're both familiar with, said that uh, the dominant commercial AI for video recognition for white men, 99%. For, for dark-skinned females, 64%. So imagine starting your interview as, as a dark-skinned female at 65-ish percent and a light-skinned male starting at 99%. So discrimination can occur uh, on the outset right there. You know, I think it's particularly welcome and helpful that you're providing these colorful illustrations of what specifically you're talking about when you're talking about violations uh, through an EEOC lens. I think so often when we say artificial intelligence, we lose people right there. I mean, it's a it's a concept that's not part of uh, most people's education and training. And so it's hard to feel comfortable in that conversation. And then we're going to these very complicated forms of bias and discrimination where, for instance, often we're trying to prove a negative. So it, it might be that uh, you were specifically denied an opportunity based on a protected class that is illegal. But often, as we know with AI, it's, it's again, proving this negative where you were overlooked because you were not the appropriate gender based on what the algorithm learned from the data or how it was trained, how it was built. So um, it's really welcome and appreciated uh, that you're explaining specifically how some of these can go wrong and, and how employers vendors, how employees can help advocate for themselves knowing where these are. So to that point, could you share some examples of violations, lawsuits, enforcement actions? Are there specifics underway that you're able to talk about at the EEOC or otherwise that employers should be aware of as they proceed with AI? Well, as you know, I take an easy out here and say I'm a, uh, a government official and I cannot talk about our EEOC investigations are confidential and whether or not the EEOC is currently or previously had any sort of federal investigation on a company's use of AI in a discriminatory matter is confidential. So how do you like that one? A very Washington DC answer, but in all seriousness, um, we cannot discuss any ongoing uh, litigations, excuse me, ongoing charges in federal investigations. If one of these if there is a case and it becomes uh, public through our 
filing a lawsuit, the EEOC has the ability to file its own lawsuits, unlike other federal agencies, then obviously it would be public. But searching all of our public records, um, you have not seen a EEOC public litigation on any of this. There's been other cases out there in the private sector that reference the EEOC that I can uh, not talk about. Um, but from our perspective, you know, there's a few issues here of why maybe we haven't seen the amount of cases. Number one is um, an employee has to know they're discriminated and come to the EEOC and file what's called a charge of discrimination. And that is true for every private and essentially public sector employees. You can't just go uh, sue an employer um, for violating your uh, civil rights in the workplace, whether it's done by a human resource manager or it's done by a computer. It all has to come to the EEOC. Here with AI being used in so many areas, um, there's certainly a lack of understanding from employees that decisions that were made against them um, that did not give them the employment opportunity or took away an employment opportunity was made by an algorithm, not an individual. So a lot of times, um, whether it's fear of retaliation or any other issue, individuals just say, you know, I didn't get the job because, you know, they didn't like me and the HR person and, and that's it. But there's a lack of knowledge that they may have been completely excluded from ever having the opportunity to interview because the AI screened them out at the earliest stages. So that's certainly an issue. I know there's some... Uh, states and localities trying to uh, address that. The other, you know, as far as enforcement authority here, um, there's a unique tool um, that commissioners themselves have. Um, so Senate confirmed commissioners have the ability to file a commissioner charge in their own name. So um, if, you know, a lot of times these charges have come from a commissioner watching 60 Minutes or, or reading a newspaper article about something and then the commissioner can start it itself. The other avenue where the EEOC can get involved in uh, AI uh, from a policy perspective or it is through our amicus program where we can file um, briefs in federal courts, uh, at circuit courts related to issues of AI or any employment law going up in appeal. So we really haven't seen um, much of this at all based upon the publicly available record. Um, and a lot of that may be because the technology is so new and employees don't know um, that it's even being used. Um, could be some of the reasons why we haven't seen much uh, private or public litigation against uh, AI. Well, that is perfectly understood. Thank you for um, expanding upon the no. We can't say anything. I think obviously Kay and I as lawyers expect such an answer, but couldn't help but ask because we often hear about the potential work that you all have underway and um, Look forward to seeing what comes of that. But what we can say is what was publicly announced in October of 2021, the launch of the initiative on artificial intelligence, which is a really big deal. I mean, the EEOC is formally looking at AI in its application as applied to civil rights laws. Can you tell us a little bit more about what was the thinking behind launching this initiative and, and what do you hope to achieve with it? Sure. So um, as you mentioned, in October of 2021, we formally announced an initiative on the use of AI in the workplace. The initiative's stated goal is to examine more closely how technology is fundamentally changing the way employment decisions are made. So you've seen this from a lot of other agencies as well. I know there's uh, general interests, uh, whether it's from the White House or the Department of Defense or the FDA, of how uh, AI applications are being used in their world. So we're certainly seeing a trend in the executive uh, branch on AI initiatives regarding very specific use in application. But for us, it aims to guide applicants, employees, employers, and technology vendors in ensuring that these technologies are 
not only fairly used, but consistent with our equal employment opportunity laws. So as part of the initiative, the EEOC is going to establish an internal work group to coordinate the agency's work on the initiative, launch a series of listening sessions um, to discuss that. We've had our first one, um, and you, uh, it's available online. I've posted it on my LinkedIn and my Twitter. Um, that was uh, with uh, disability advocates where we spoke about, where we had a listening session hearing from a whole host of disability aspect, advocates about how these tools can potentially help. And again, harm, it's always, uh, you know, have to have that balance of the potential good and the potential bad for people, individuals living with disabilities. So that's available to the public. I encourage uh, everyone to watch that. So I think the ultimate goal of this is to identify uh, practices and issue some sort of uh, technical assistance to address that concern I raised earlier on when I got into this and was just saying for employers who want to comply and employees who want to know what their rights are, um, that right now, it, that doesn't exist. And I think that is so critical in the conversation uh, that everyone should welcome and be interested in and hopefully participate. Thank you. We've been talking about AI for hiring and AI in all sorts of um, human resources issues. And so I wonder, do you see a role for human resources managers still, or are they a dying breed? Well, I'm very passionate about this because you can't have a set and forget it approach with HR technologies for the reasons I stated before. Aside from, you know, the significant legal ramifications, humans have to remain in the loop when, you, when it comes to um, HR technology. And let me give you an example here about AI and, and the specific law, one of the laws we enforce, the Americans with Disability Act. Um, so there, as, as a lot of employers are starting to use AI, um, I know we've been talking about the hiring portion a lot in the resume, but employers are using AI now to um, evaluate employees, uh, especially in manufacturing or delivery services. You can have an algorithm watching, overseeing thousands of employees all over the world on productivity measures. Uh, productivity measures that they have been graded on for, for years and years that an individual human used to actually look over their shoulder and do. But now you can have AI to do that. So this is a one of the best use cases when you're talking about finding the division between labor, actually having humans, and automating it, between algorithms and HR, between using AI to improve the decisions and delegating authority. So here's exactly what I'm talking about. So there's, the ADA requires the employers to go to do certain things, and that's generally known as giving accommodations um, through what's called an interactive process between two humans. So most of the times, the interactive process begins when an employee notifies its employer through HR that, look, I'm having problems at work. I have a, a mental disability, a physical disability, or, you know, I have a need religious accommodation. And without that, I can't perform my job to the way I could. And, and that has been how HR departments have functioned and what the ADA requires. But now, in the example I gave you earlier, if you're automating some of that function and the employee's primary interface with its employer is now an app or an algorithm, initiating that process can be daunting because employees may not be willing to disclose some of their most personal and protected issues in a chatbot. And 
you know, they may not even know who the clear point of contact is. So a conversation, you can go in HR and close the door and know their role and say, here, here are the issues I'm having. And the employer can have that conversation is very difficult. And who knows if you put it into a chatbot where it goes. Also, why this law is a little complicated in the sense that there's some instances where an employer is expected to start that process. So if an employer knows that the employee is struggling and having workplace issues because of a disability, you know, because of, of, of pregnancy, because of uh, you know, the need for religious accommodation, that process starts when the employer sees it, the HR manager or the manager sees it with their own eyes that the employee is struggling. So unless both of you know otherwise, I don't think there's an algorithm sophisticated enough now to be able to, to see that sort of sensitivity and responsiveness to meet, to meet the needs of those employees that are, employers are required to do by law, either by the employer starting it or the employee starting it. So there, you have to have a human in the, in the loop because if the AI is just downgrading or giving warnings or firing somebody solely because they didn't hit their manufacturing enough widgets for the day, and that was because of a disability, then the employer is liable there for not engaging in the interactive process. So I don't know if either of you know of an AI that is that sophisticated enough, but that's really where there needs to be a balance. Such a great point. So I think you have uh, employers sufficiently concerned now. They're hearing about all the ways that this product, this new AI tool that they were so excited about because it's going to create efficiencies, it's going to help them reduce bias, it's going to help ensure compliance. Um, and now they're hearing about all the ways that they could be spreading discrimination and reducing the number of candidates who they see and who thrive at their workplace. Um, what guidance do you give employers in these situations? How do you tell them um, that they can ensure that balance that you're talking about where they're maximizing the benefits of AI without violating the laws that you're reviewing uh, or, or under other purview? And here's what's most shocking to a lot of employers is that um, whether or not the employer intended to discriminate, uh, they're still liable for discrimination um, in, in most cases. So. There's no defense yet that I've seen that oh, the robot did it, EEOC, I didn't mean to discriminate. Sorry, I discriminated against this whole class of people. It was the robot. That's my, uh, don't come after us. It's just not how it works. And, and again, I, I, in here, because the technology is advanced, but the laws are, are, the laws are the same. So the same principles apply to AI as they do to any other decision being made. But again, they're made at a larger scale. And now you're dealing with, more significant data sets, and, and you're dealing with outside vendors, technology companies who are designing these processes that the employer implements and the employer is making the employment decision. That's just the state of the law in the United States. The employer is liable for whatever decisions these tools made, whether they bought it or whether they made it themselves. So now a lot of it needs to come on the front end, you know, with employers asking vendors, um, and a lot of vendors have answers to it, you know, how how do you test for discrimination? You know, what types of statistical analysis do you perform to test for disparate impact, which is that unintentional theory of discrimination? You know, how do you choose these methods and why do you think they're going to be right in my case? What were the results? And are you going to retest in for potentially discriminatory impact? And you know, what is the process that I need to be doing before? And a lot of really good examples of this, of employers testing out these systems and seeing that they discriminate. But in those cases, when you're doing that, when you're running these tests before, you know, you, you can correct it 
before it ever makes some large scale of discrimination. So this is part of the initiative. This is part of why I want to get involved is to help employers with their due diligence when it comes to vetting AI. Because, you know, more than other areas, it, again, it opposes discrimination, it opposes heavy human, social and financial costs. And um, but that's why I'm here. And that's why, you know, we're still at the early stages in the sense where as so much new technology comes online, um, there's differences. And there, it's really the entire employee life cycle. Um, there's AI's tools for that. So, you know, that's that's on me. That's my responsibility here at the EEOC to say how each of these laws, these tools apply and, and to work with vendors. And, and I, I must say, you know, this is a unique time where I started is that I've encountered a community of employee advocates, engineers, data scientists, entrepreneurs, AI ethicists, lawyers. Um, there's a lot of stakeholders involved in this. And there's one thing that I believe most people think in this industry is that they believe this is the future. They believe in their algorithms and they really genuinely believe that these AI programs can promote equality of opportunity in the workplace, which is our mission at the EEOC. So we, we need to embrace that in the sense where we need to ensure that the vendors who are largely outside of HR, largely outside of legal departments, um, which they should because they're designing pretty complicated algorithms, I would imagine, that they understand uh, you know, what their obligations are because the more they can build, the more guidance we give and the more practical advice we give, I have to believe the vendors, employers are going to demand it and the vendors are going to build their systems around it. So I, again, I think we should welcome this interest, um, which is why I'm so excited to be involved at such a crucial point. In the Thank you. And um, you've talked very eloquently about the existing laws and the existing laws being robust and being able to be used in, in this new machine age with artificial intelligence in the workplace. But I just wonder whether you think there are any new federal laws or regulations specifically around these risks of artificial intelligence that um, really need to be um, created uh, because there is something missing from that, from that old suite of laws that you have at your fingertips. Well, again, uh, being in the executive branch, I enforce whatever laws Congress passed. And I, will, I took an oath to do that faithfully. So um, right now, I can just focus on the laws that are um, have been existing that the EEOC administrators enforce and do that practical application. But in all seriousness, because of the lack of guidance from a federal perspective, and I know this is not unique to the HR space, um, you know, you've seen various proposals in Congress um, be raised. Obviously, everything that's going on with the EU and the Artificial Intelligence Act proposals, we're starting to see now a patchwork of state and local and city laws regarding the use of AI. You know, Illinois came out early about artif uh, artificial intelligence video interviews and the parameters and auditing that needs to be um, done there. Same uh, in Maryland as well. They amended their labor code to deal with facial recognition. In the city of New York, we're seeing, uh, you know, there are a law that goes into effect next year that requires bias audits on certain protected characteristics, requires disclosures. And, you know, there's new proposals out of uh, California uh, as well that are going to be very significant. So employers who operate on a national or global level to deal with these patchwork of AI regulations, it's difficult in this sense. But from my perspective and getting to your question, at the federal level, we can't pick and choose okay, we're just going to talk about regulating facial recognition. We're going to talk about uh, uh, using uh, 
programs that uh, do uh, industrial psychology tests online, right? We have to look at every, and why this task is tremendous, and I don't want to say difficult, but why it's certainly a challenge, is that we can't pick and choose which area of the law we want to do a specific regulation. We have to look at it broadly on that list where I started of every, for applicants and employees, you know, every interaction they have in the workplace um, is that AI is being used. We have to look at the entire um, spectrum of that. So uh, in, in a sense, there's certainly some um, positives from certain state and local proposals and, you know, everything that's going on in the EU. I know a lot of the global regulators um, ar around the world, Okay, and I know you're very involved in this, um, whether it's here or in other countries, are looking to the EU now and really watching that closely because unlike the current state of affairs in the United States, the EU is saying its use in employment is high risk, subjecting it to those very robust reporting and disclosure requirements. Going even further, saying the vendors can have some liability here as well. So in one sense, it's helpful for me to see various proposals and to see um, the, the positives and negatives from each. But on the other hand, it's up to us at the federal government um, to make that uniform approach um, for the United States. And, and I know in our area, when it comes to uh, labor employment, civil rights place in the workplace, a lot of countries really look to what the EEOC, the United States does when it comes to that. So it's important also to um, work with other jurisdictions, whether it's local, whether it's overseas, to have some sort of unified standard because Right now, the large global corporations who can afford to buy this or develop themselves, they're deploying the similar software in multiple countries around the world. So um, that's why uh, where I've been interested in um, discussing with uh, counterparts in, in, in EU and, and across the world on, on the best practices there. Well, I'm sure a lot of employers are breathing a sigh of relief that you just said that because, uh, as you point out, AI doesn't operate within borders. And so I'm sure uh, knowing that you recognize that challenge when they're building, deploying, employing AI, um, it, it presents a similar challenge. Um, but uh, this has been such an interesting conversation. We hate to bring it to a close, but we know we have to let you get back to this important work. So before we let you go, one question we like to ask all of our guests is uh, what you would do if you were without constraints, if you had a magic wand and you could wish for one thing to achieve responsible, safe, trustworthy AI, what would that be? Well, again, I think it's, it's unique in my case um, to what I'm focused on. And we're not talking about using AI to automate a function of a business to uh, essentially, you know, be more productive or produce a good faster logistics faster. For us, you know, deciding to tr entrust algorithms with people's livelihood and has to is very complex, and our, our federal labor laws are very complex. So, for me, you know, my magic wand is that we need everyone to realize we cannot fully realize the potential of AI unless it is utilized in a manner consistent with our laws, not just our laws, but our, our values as a whole. And, and you've seen that in some of the more global regulatory framework regarding AI in general, right? You, you hear about our, our not only our laws, but our values. So, um, you know, we're in an interesting in time where it's, it's just not hitting the legal obligations, but what are the actual ethical and responsible obligations, and they blur together, uh, which is a good thing because they really go hand in hand here. So um, that would be, I guess, my magic wand is to make sure that the developers of AI and the people who want to buy AI are ensuring 
that what they're buying and what they're developing, what they're putting in the market is consistent with our, not only our laws, but our values. Perfect. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. And most importantly, for all the work that you're doing to ensure that uh, employees, potential employees, that uh, citizens are safe. Thank you. Well, that was certainly a lot of interesting content and thought. I look forward to hearing what were your big takeaways? Well, I think first of all, it, it's going to be a podcast that you really need to listen to again and again and again, because as you say, there's so much information in there um, and so, so much of importance, you know, for example, the fact that this that human resources is still and always should be a combination of artificial intelligence and the human. Um, and I think that some of the examples that Commissioner Sondling gave uh, are around that topic and many others really help us to really bring that knowledge within ourselves in a way that um, that I, many people have not done so. And talking about sort of bringing that knowledge, um, I do think that his comments on um, how dangerous uh, that um, these the use of artificial intelligence in human resources is without um, without the without proper control and proper thought and the potential cost of um, falling foul of, of one of the regulations of the EEOC and just the reminder that you can fall foul of these regulations without being at fault in many cases, you know. So so I think I thought all of that was just so incredibly useful and interesting. Absolutely. And I do think that is the key point there, that intent here doesn't matter, that you can and probably are discriminating in some way if you have not checked for bias in your AI and you're using it in HR functions. And I think it's so helpful that he spelled out the numerous ways that companies across the globe are now routinely using AI. Uh, so many people think of it in one small context, but it's really being used throughout the life cycle. And many people in the senior leadership might not know that. Many people who are interviewing for jobs might not realize that they have rights too. I'm so glad he mentioned this is not just employees, this is applicants that fall under their purview and are protected by the laws that they uh, are in charge of, of, of applying. I, I think it's so helpful that he was very uh, granular in, in how he approaches this in all the different applications. I think it's so helpful that he mentioned the ADA, um, that uh, that this is a law that um, is is going to be impacting so many employers in the use of AI. You know, have they accommodated speech impediments if they are using voice recognition technology? There are just so many applications that um, we'd rather, I know you and I, and it sounds like the commissioner too, would rather employers think about this now we don't want them to be caught by lawsuits in the end because that means there has been people who have been hurt, who have been overlooked, who have been disadvantaged. Much better that people take advantage of this now. And I love that he just said that at the beginning, that 
this is exciting. We are at this unique juncture where we can still take action. We can make sure that people are included in the workforce, that they are given the opportunities to thrive in the ways that they want to, we want them to, and employers will want these great candidates to be able to. But again, key asterisks, as he says, if we employ the proper standards and safeguards, if we are making sure to test that these AI systems are working in the way that we are intending for them to, keeping humans in the loop, as he said, and as so many, almost I think every one of our guests has said along the way, uh, and retesting as AI continues to iterate. So as you said, so much good content, and I can't wait to listen to it again to really think more about what he said in our interview today. Absolutely. And if what what you listen to today um, really scares you, and I think it should not scare you, but it should alert you, um, uh, the forum actually has created a really good piece of work uh, on how to think carefully about how you use AI in hiring. And so that's a tool that is existing free of charge for you to actually be able to pick up and begin to think about how you navigate this path. A great tool, and so glad you mentioned that. We'll make sure to include that uh, link in, in the distribution of the podcast because we want people to be able to get this right. This is hard. This is new technology, uh, and it is a time when the standards are being set. But as you said, there are civil rights laws on the books we know uh, of, as well as other laws across the globe. So thank you for mentioning this helpful resource so that employers, senior executives, others have a sense of what they can be doing now today to avoid these harms. And I think the other thing that um, Commissioner Sondling talked about was that, you know, the, it, it's not just the human resource managers who have to be, um, who have to know about this. It is the C-suite that have to know about this as well. And um, we have another tool out for, um, for the C-suite to understand use of AI. And there's a whole section for members of the C-suite who work in HR, as well as the CEO, who really needs to understand where AI is being used. It's not, I keep saying to our, our partners that it's not about um, leaving it all to the CTO. Um, actually, everybody in the C-suite has to understand where AI is being used in their business. Can't imagine a better note to end on. Thank you for iterating that important point and for uh, foot stomping on the importance of senior leadership understanding where they are using AI, how it could go wrong, and that, again, we're at this unique moment, this fork in the road, where they can make sure it is supporting their values, their mission, their company, instead of setting them up to be a case that Commissioner Sonderling is investigating. <laughs> Thank you, Kay, for another great conversation. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. 
And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 